Hello and welcome to Trashy Divorces, everybody's favorite good podcast about bad relationships. And this week, we're taking that quite literally. My name is Stacy. Alicia, tell the people what we got. In honor of all the 2023 Trashy Divorces where couples have split in droves. Today's tale of marital misadventure, we're going to be strolling through a meadow filled with red flags, exploring the bad relationship of the never-divorced but really should have been Zelda and Scott Fitzgerald. Zelda and Scott, icons of the Roaring Twenties, the queen and king of the Jazz Age, with really all told in their marriage about three good years, if even. It was a long marriage, but a short period of happiness. They maybe should have split after that. We really do celebrate the endings and relationships around here. And I wish that these two would have left because I think it would have been healthier for both of these partners not in that relationship. And this is not the first time we have discussed Scott and Zelda, is it? It is not. We covered this story all the way back in season one. This is not that episode. This is a brand new episode for me today in season 20. But to be fair, yes, I am and will always be Team Zelda. Sure. No reflection on that at all in the last four years or whatever. (laughs) No changes. No lies detected. (laughs) Hey, before we begin today's episode, we do have a magic mirror here filled with names for thanks, praise, and shout outs. Thank you so much to our newest supporters over at patreon.com slash trashy divorces. Thanks to Emily G, Nancy C., Mary T, Stephanie C, Bunny Mom, Shona C, Jessica B, Keisha M, Tarna, Dion H, Lauren F, Caitlin R, and Carly N. Holy cats, y'all are the best. Thank you so much for your support over at patreon.com slash trashy divorces. Alicia, what do we need to do to get to Scott and Zelda? What they didn't do, which was go, go, go. We're going to begin today's story with our groom, Hmm. introducing one, Francis Scott Key Fitzgerald. Who was he named for? (laughs) (laughs) An Irish Catholic boy from St. Paul, Minnesota, Scott is, born on September 24th, 1896. He's a Libra. He's right at the end of the cusp of beauty. Scott Fitzgerald's natal chart is one of the most interesting I have ever seen. Follow-up coming. Scott's dad, he's a pretty dapper guy. He wears fancy clothes. He's a big talker, but he's really crap at business. He's not a very good businessman. Okay. Scott's mother is the person in the home who gets it done. She is from an affluent family. She is the enforcer. She makes things happen, mom does. The Fitzgeralds grow up in the worst house on the best block. If that makes sense, Mm -hmm. there's always going to be an outside looking in thing with Scott. And it's rooted, I think, within his childhood. Scott's mom is going to borrow money from her family in order to send Scott to the best schools. But even in that situation, outside looking in, Scott is the less affluent kid. Right. He's the poorest kid in the rich kid school. That's exactly right. And we're going to see this repetition at least manifest in his own psychosis throughout his life. 
1908, when Scott is about 15 years old, his father is fired from his sales job. And dad pretty much is a failure for the rest of his life. At that point, dad sort of breaks down, collapses, and leaves it up to Scott's mother to make it happen for the family and for Scott. Dad just kind of gives up, checks out. Okay. Not great. Not great. But the good thing here, the really great thing, is during these years, Scott figures out he can write. And wow, is he talented. He's promising. He's a poet and he knows it. (laughs) In the future, (laughs) Scott Fitzgerald's going to steal a lot from his wife. But to be fair, kid can write. He's dedicated. He has a perseverance in writing that is to be admired. He's lousy with talent and really does have a drive. He has a, a compulsion to write. So the combination of these two is really something. Scott doesn't mind writing and rewriting multiple drafts over and over. He wants to get every word right. And I can respect that. I do think it's a little bit sad that Scott Fitzgerald never really knows what a success he becomes. It doesn't happen in his lifetime. Yeah, for for all the fame of Gatsby, it kind of... Didn't happen as soon as it came, yeah. Well, it didn't happen for him. Gatsby was not well-received. Right. Gatsby was a flunk in 1925, but Scott, I think, sees his dad fall flat and makes up his mind as a ute, so to speak, that he's not going to be a failure like his father, and he knows he's really good at writing. And Scott begins writing here, in my opinion, as a way to gain control over his future, and thus his psychosis begins. Scott starts writing stories in the high school paper, and then, of course, he's on to writing plays. Hmm. And Scott always writes himself in the starring role. Of course. He's always the Mm anti-hero, so to speak. I'm the problem, it's me. But here Scott really is grabbing onto this, I write the script. If I can write it, I can control it. And thus begins F. Scott Fitzgerald and his weird psychological development. Keep that bit in your back pocket. It's all about control. In 1913, Scott is accepted into Princeton. And Scott goes to Princeton with all these elaborate fantasies in his head about being the BMOC, big man on campus. Scott thinks he's going to be a football hero. Scott is five feet, eight inches tall and pretty slight. He's not exactly the dream build you want in athletics. He's a little bit more Joe Alwyn, a little less Travis Kelsey. Five, eight was probably a good height for the era, though. Well, Scott's kind of a wuss, man. He's he's got writer's hands, not football catcher hands and... It's not hard to believe that Scott's dream doesn't happen. So Mm -hmm. instead, he will write for the literary magazine and join the Triangle Club. Okay. The Triangle Club is a bunch of actors. And the thing I need you to know is Princeton at the time was all men. And few looked as good as Scott Fitzgerald dressed in drag. He looks great in drag. So he is always the... 
feminine drag role in the performances of the Triangle Club. Sure. Uh, banned in Tennessee, actually. <laughs> That's for sure. So at Princeton, like a lot of college kids, drinking alcohol, the pursuance of fun, yeah. and getting wasted every day, sure. sometimes becomes a little bit more important than writing or performing Tri- in Triangle drag. clubbing, mm-hmm. yeah. So Scott is going to end up on academic probation. Hmm. The thing you want to know about Scott, and honestly, the reason we have so much material to work with with the Fitzgerald is Scott's a daily diarist. He writes letters. He writes so many letters and he writes notes every day about what he's doing. He's got some real illusions of grandeur. But in some of these letters, they're not all good. And it's part of, I think, his control thing. When Scott begins to lose control over his own life, he begins to control others' lives. It's a pattern. It starts here during this Princeton time frame because Scott's on academic probation. He's in big, big trouble. And Scott is going to write his younger sister about effective tips to get a man. His general viewpoint for how to get a man is to diminish yourself as much as possible, sis. Scott's letters can get mean. <laughs> just a, just such a handy tip. <laughs> yeah, diminish yourself as much as possible. But it's not just mean letters that Scott's writing to his sister. Scott's trying to get the girls with letters too. So let's talk about his most influential relationship before Zelda. Scott is going to meet the top girl. She's 16. Her name is Generva King. They do this back in high school. Scott and Generva date for a while and exchange love letters until Generva's dad tells Scott that he is entirely unsuitable for his daughter. Because, mm. yeah, he was the poorest kid at the rich kid's school. Exactly. Okay. Daddy-O tells Scott rich girls don't marry poor boys. Again, this is... Oh, you're going to be a writer, huh? <laughs> Again, this is Scott on the outside looking in. He can't get what he so much wants. And Scott keeps all the letters that Generva wrote through his whole life. This is through multiple worldwide moves where the stuff always doesn't come with them. And Zelda sets a lot of their crap on fire. So for Scott to have this collection of letters from his high school days is really Mm. sort of incredible. Genova King is a big deal in his psychosis. I thought you were going to say imagination, but sure. No, his psychosis. Genova King is his Scott's original golden girl fantasy. She is the girl that all of the boys want, but none can possess. Put a pin in that. Scott's just going to, simmer pot (laughs) this on the back burner until right he's gonna meet zelda and then all bets are off so scott in princeton not doing great academic probation he withdraws his junior year he withdraws as opposed to being kicked out because he's flunking out so here's scott 1917 failed at school failed at love the United States has entered World War One, and Scott is old enough now to go to boot camp. Scott Fitzgerald, 
Poet Annie knows it. Where is he going to end up in boot camp? We're going to leave that section just for a moment and introduce our bride, Zelda Sayre. Ah, my girl, Team Zelda always. She was born in Montgomery, Alabama, July 24th, 1900. Zelda is a Leo girl with a Leo rising. And as interesting as Scott Fitzgerald's natal chart is, Zelda's is just as interesting in a completely opposite way. There's a lot of fire in Zelda's chart. Zelda is a turn-of-the-century baby, and what a legacy she has. It is not unimportant people that Zelda is born unto in Montgomery. Zelda's daddy is in the law. All of his roots are in Alabama. Zelda's mama, her roots are in politics, but a little bit further north. Zelda's mom has forgotten dreams in her own life of being a star on the stage that never happened. There's a lot of complicated things happening in Zelda's Amago. Zelda's dad, his name is Anthony Dickinson Sayre. He worked as a lawyer. He was a representative in the Alabama State Legislature. He was a state senator, a city judge, and a justice of the Supreme Court of Alabama. Judge Sayre is kind of a big deal in Alabama politics. Both Zelda's great uncle and grandfather also served in the United States Senate. Like, wow. Yeah. So this is an extremely prominent family. Correct. Absolutely correct. And Zelda's dad, while described as unshakable, I'd say this like he was a great warrior for justice. He was not. He lived oh, in Montgomery, no, Alabama. Uh, yeah, there's no, yeah, there's no way. Zelda's dad authors the Sare Election Law, which prohibits blacks from voting in Alabama until the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964. Named after Zelda's dad. So these are not people who like to think that the South lost the War of Northern Aggression. I mean, Montgomery was the cradle of the Confederacy. That was the capital of the Confederacy. Montgomery at that time was a very insular world where people don't know they lost. Zelda's mama. She's a little more extra. Again, mama's dream was to be an actress (laughs) before... Her own political relatives, her father, her great uncle, nixed that idea. And off Zelda's mom goes to Alabama to be with the judge, sort of forced to be a sensible grown-up when Zelda's mom had some different ideas. I think Zelda will get mama's dream deferred. Zelda has some older siblings, all sisters, one brother. She's the baby of the family. Zelda comes late in her mother's having kids cycle. I need you to know that Zelda Fitzgerald is Southern royalty. She's called baby her whole life by every member of her family. Zelda was named after a character in a book about the Romani people, but Zelda baby is doted upon. She's loved by her mother and her siblings, and to the extent that her father is capable of love, he too loves Zelda. Zelda in Montgomery is running buddies with Tallulah Bankhead as a child, previous TD alum, and like Montgomery, small town, big characters, right? Let's get Zelda to about 17 because there's a lot happening in tiny Montgomery and southern environs. The thing is with Zelda, she's got it. 
She's got that certain thing. She is one of the most sought-after Bells in the entire Southeast at that time. She's a big deal. There's a fraternity at Auburn University that is specifically created and named Zeta Sigma in honor of Zelda Sayre, and the only way that you could get in to Zeta Sig was if you had a date with Zelda Sayre. This seems deeply inappropriate, but okay. She goes to parties all over Alabama, up in Atlanta, over at Georgia Tech. Zelda's hot stuff, and she knows it. She is living her best life in a world that is rapidly changing around her. World War I is changing the face of the culture. Things are shifting even in her tiny town. And Zelda is a girl with some big dreams and ambitions. And at 17... She's seen her childhood friend Tallulah Bankhead, a little bit older than Zelda, break into something much larger than the cartwheels and gymnastics they used to do at the fountain down at the courthouse. Zelda has the boom boom pow. She's a Leo girl. She's creative. She's dreamy. She dances. Zelda's mama makes all of her costumes. They're gorgeous. She is legendary, and everybody knows about Zelda Sayre. It is recalled, quote, When Zelda Sayre came to dances, the Birmingham girls just went on home, unquote. (laughs) Now, do I say this like she has a good girl reputation? Absolutely not. Zelda's as bad as they come. Her reputation in Montgomery is kind of wild. She dives in a nude-colored bathing suit. She smokes. She drinks. She flaunts convention. She is the pre-flapper, flapper happening. She's got brains and creativity and beauty and rebelliousness. And the heart of an actress, Sweet Summer Child Zelda, 1918, ready for a good time. Stitching it back together. Scott Fitzgerald gets his orders for boot camp, and 2nd Lieutenant Fitzgerald reports to Camp Sheridan in Montgomery, Alabama, and will attend a dance, as stationed military men do, because the whole town is making sure entertainment happens Mm -hmm. for our boys heading off to war, and so it goes. Scott sees Zelda in her dancing costume, And everything inside of Scott is melting and on fire all at the same time. Scott is in love. All of his words, all of those long-lost Genova words, all of his angst, his outside looking in, everything has been leading up to this one thing. The one thing being Zelda. And thus begins Scott's manic pixie dream girl manifestation, which only has one focus. And that one focus is Zelda. Everything is thrust upon her, which we are going to come back to after a quick break to hear from our sponsors. We return with the courtship of Zelda and Scott. It's a love story, baby. Just say no, Zelda. Say no. We'll be right back. Hey, Trash Pandas, when you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. 
Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project, an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, I talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today. Beautiful Anonymous. So Scott has a pinpoint focus, a laser-like focus. Laser-like focus. He's representing. Here he's come to boot camp with his own Brooks Brothers uniform. Yeah, you had to supply your own uniform back in the day. You could upgrade it. Yeah. Okay. He's dashing. He's dreamy. He sees Zelda. And honestly, they're described almost as twins. They look like twins. They have a very similar aesthetic. Scott meets Zelda. He can't even stand it. And depending on who you believe, it may have happened at a home. It may have happened at this like camp outside of town where they had dances and stuff. But Scott's hooked. And he begins thinking of Zelda as, tell me how problematic this is, the princess in the tower. It is a springtime in 1918, full of love. Gifts are exchanged. Every letter mentions Zelda as his princess in the tower. And Scott lifts her up on this weird Genova King pedestal, but Zelda doesn't know about that. Right. You know, his old top girl has been knocked off, and Zelda's now on this pedestal, and Scott is on fire. Here he begins writing this side of paradise. Scott is waiting any day to be shipped off to fight in World War One, sure. but World War One ends. Hmm. I don't like good for Scott and uh, yeah. all those other guys at Camp Sheridan, I suppose. Hemingway was probably annoyed. <laughs> Scott's a little mad that he didn't get to see combat. But here he's gonna propose to Zelda. And then move to New York and get a job. Because he's writing. He's writing this side of paradise, but he still has to support himself. Yeah. And he is writing to sell the book. So Zelda will... It's all a big plan in -hmm. his brain. Scott's working at an advertising agency. He hates it. And he's writing this side of paradise at nighttime. And that novel, this side of paradise in this time period, is already rejected twice by Scribner's. Like, it's just, it's not there. And remember, Scott proposes to Zelda before he goes to New York City, and Zelda's like, sure, why not? I have four other fiancés and pins from all kinds of fraternity boys and servicemen. 
Oh, yeah, servicemen, like, dip the wings of their planes over my house, like, four times a day. I got a lot of bow, and it's fine. Sure, I'll marry you, Scott. Like, (laughs) she accepts everybody's. She has no intention of marrying anybody, but everybody's going to war, and it's so romantic, right? Sure. But her friend Tallulah Bankhead went to New York City, right, and became a Broadway? yeah. 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 So, perhaps... But Zelda's, you know, told Scott yes, telling every other boy in the South yes, too. Sure. But Scott won't give up on this princess and the tower thing. So Zelda's going to do this switch where she writes two different letters, one being to Scott and one being to another one of her boyfriends. But she switches the pen that she's returning of the other boyfriend Like, baby's playing games. If Scott's going to do it, Zelda's like, all right, Scott, do it, but you're going to be a writer. Okay, show me, right? (laughs) So Scott just works harder. He gets this other guy's pin back and like, oh, no, what do we do? Zelda's like, listen, Scott, you're making $35 a week at this advertising agency and you want to be a writer. And I think that's fantastic, but I'm not sure if you've heard that I'm kind of a big deal here in Dixie. And it's really clear to me, I can do better than you, Scott. So in June of 1919, Zelda breaks off the engagement. Scott is devastated. Tail between his legs, he heads on back to St. Paul to live with his parents, now taking 16 hours a day to finish this side of paradise. He is borrowing money for cigarettes and typing paper. Going back to English class just a little bit, This Side of Paradise is Scott's first novel, loosely constructed about his college days. And the thing that This Side of Paradise is going to do is reach a whole new generation that's being created flappers and philosophers. These young, hip kids in this new generation that is rapidly changing. They have these hopes and fears of a post-war generation. No faith in man. Here come the roaring 20s. We've survived it. Let's party with a capital P. This Side of Paradise was the exact right book at the exact right time. March 26, 1920. This Side of Paradise is released and it sells out on its first day. Hmm. It's risque at the time. There's not ever been a book that exposes the young people of the day and what they're doing. Flappers, petting parties, everybody's kissing. It is the novel of the new generation written at first about high school girlfriend Genevieve King but then manifesting into this Zelda morph-like thing. Scott knows that the publication of the book is coming, and here he (laughs) re-proposes to Zelda, and it all happens pretty fast. 1920, Scott's an instant celebrity. The book comes out March 26th. So he did have some taste of success during his writing career. Yes. Yeah, enough to become an egomaniac for the next 20 years. 
Okay, so Scott, instant celebrity, at least in a certain set because of this Mm -hmm. book. March 26th that comes out, he, Scott, has arranged for he and Zelda to get married on April 3rd, two weeks after the book is published. Zelda's going to take a train from Montgomery to New York in her weird Alabama clothes. Like she puts on what is her nicest suit. And she arrives and they get married in the rectory of St. Patrick's Cathedral. They can't get married in the church. They get married in the rectory. This is like a Wednesday. This isn't a weekend wedding. Scott hasn't invited anybody. Zelda's not Catholic. (laughs) One of Scott's friends is there. And Scott insists that the priest do the ceremony before any of Zelda's family arrives. Her sisters are coming. Not her mom doesn't come. But her sister Rosalind is coming to see the wedding. And by the time Rosalind gets there, the wedding's done. Okay, all that's very strange. Once the wedding is done, Zelda and Scott take off for the Biltmore and party all night. And Rosalind, hanging out with everybody who should have been there for the wedding, awkwardly takes everybody to lunch. But the seed is planted. Zelda's family does not like Scott. They didn't like him to begin with. They don't like him after they get married. They're not going to like him anymore as time goes on. Zelda, who showed up in her dove gray, lovely cut suit, Scott's so embarrassed by her. He asks one of his girlfriends, just a friend who's a girl, to take Zelda shopping for new clothes the next day because he can't be seen with that. Zelda needs smarter clothes. And here Zelda, day one of marriage, is going to get some new clothes and begins to accept this role and new script that Scott has written for her and handed to her. I mean, and to be fair, she's remembered for this script. She's the queen of the flappers, and he's the king of the jazz age. They're legendary in New York. They dance on tables at the Waldorf. They dance in fountains, so many fountains, hotel fountains, public fountains, doesn't matter. They do cartwheels in hotel lobbies. They ride on top of taxi cabs down Fifth Avenue. This is just like Sunday night. What are we going to do on Sunday night? Let's do a Teen Wolf and ride down the rooftops of taxis. Like, whoa, so glamorous. So, I mean, on the surface, this Mm -hmm. is what... Welcome to New York. They are living it up. Like every day in Scott's script is more outrageous than the day that came before it. And you've got Zelda, fire sign girl, and Scott, air sign man, and the two of them together. Whoa. They come together and they're both performers. They are writing and acting and blending the thing all together all at the same time. They're writing the script. They're playing the roles. They look and dress the part. They're living high, living large. No party in the city is complete without them. And also, they're drinking a lot. But for right now, in this first section of marriage, because they only really have about three good years, they're inseparable. They're collaborators. They are the little twin stars. They are everything to each other. He trusts her. She trusts him. This is them on top of their game. And everything really for these three years goes pretty good. It's a productive time, but there are seeds being planted in this. 
Scott, upon releasing this side of paradise, his new wife, Zelda, is given the chance to review his novel. And Zelda writes in her review that plagiarism begins at home. Mm. Because Zelda sees a lot of her letters and her thoughts and her manifestations in Scott's writing from the very beginning of time. But this plagiarism begins at home was apparently a real sick burn in 1920 because women's magazines reach out and Zelda here begins writing pieces about flappers, Hmm. women's stories. Zelda here begins to think that she's a free and independent woman and I can earn some money too. It's not just Scott that has talent. Right. I have talent as well. I bet Scott's overjoyed by that revelation. Scott is so less than overjoyed that anything Zelda writes, he'll take and slap his name on a lot of it and sell it saying, well, they'll pay us more if we say I wrote it. But Scott is stealing her work from Mm -hmm. the beginning. They're also burning through money. So he's stealing her work. He's stealing her life inspiration. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number. Thousands of people try to call. I talk to one of them. They stay anonymous. I can't hang up. That's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh. Somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today. Beautiful Anonymous. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number. Thousands of people try to call. I talk to one of them. They stay anonymous. I can't hang up. That's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh. Somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today. Beautiful Anonymous. February 1921. Zelda announces she is pregnant. Their daughter, Scotty, is born October 26th, 1921. And Scott reuses the story of his daughter's birth in a future novel straight from Zelda's mouth on drugs after having delivered a child. I hope she'll be a beautiful fool. Scott writes it all down, saves it for later. This is Zelda's life. She is walking, talking inspiration for a man who is unholy focused on her in a very unhealthy way. He would probably just argue that everything is copy. (sighs) Well, Zelda gets this rap like she's a terrible mother. She wasn't a terrible mother. I think Zelda was put in a really complicated position by her husband. But like Zelda makes these paper dolls for her daughter. They're published in a book. Like She's very interconnected. But again, Scott always has to have control. During this time, the couple will move a lot. They'll live in a lot of different places a year at a time. And Scott continues to churn out work. He's writing for Esquire, Saturday Evening Post, Red Book. These are easy money pieces. Magazine articles are easy to write. They play in his wheelhouse, especially when you're only writing half of them and you're stealing your wife's work. But all of this magazine writing is taking away 
the time Scott had been using from writing novels. He will get another one finished, this time The Beautiful and the Damned. This novel, going back to English class, will chart the demise of a once happy couple who self-destruct because of alcohol. Perhaps some real-life manifestation. But what Scott is really doing is dreaming, just like he always has, of writing the great American novel. So Scott and Zelda are spending way too much money and drinking way too much. They move to Great Neck, Long Island in 1922, which is about half an hour away on a fast drunk ride to Manhattan. At this time, Great Neck is a place of mansions and parks. It's very upper crust. And here, Zelda and Scott rent a smaller house on the best block. Mm -hmm. Yep, saw that one coming. You can see Manhattan across the water from their home. And in Great Neck, it's time to party it up. Parties last for days. I mean, you're next to Manhattan, but kind of a world away too. Loaded with celebrities, writers. This is a prohibition party town. Scott and Zelda are <laughs> having a good time. But then Zelda's parents, the judge and mama come to yeah. visit. Huh. And so uh how did that go alicia mama and daddy are horrified Uh mama and daddy walk in and they see drunk people just lounging around they find their daughter and zelda has a black eye zelda blames this black eye on the door Mm. but everybody knows it wasn't the door so, pretty much Zelda's family hated him before the wedding. They hate him after the wedding, too. Great Neck can't last forever, and by the spring of 1924, off Zelda and Scott go with their daughter and $7,000 and 17 suitcases. Hmm. They're headed out of town. U.S. isn't working for them anymore. They're going to go expat it up a little bit beginning their tour in the French Riviera. Here they land among a glittering crowd with a bunch of other expats escaping the drolls of prohibition. I was going to say, I mean... (laughs) Well, the dollar is incredibly strong at this time in Paris. And who were they hanging out with? Gerald and Sarah Murphy. And Gerald and Sarah Murphy know everybody. 1924, they're in the French Riviera for the summer, and here Scott begins to write The Great Gatsby in earnest and sort of locks himself away. I'm not going to do anything besides spend the summer writing this book. So they land in the French Riviera. Holy cats. Gerald and Sarah Murphy, Picasso, Cole Porter, Like this whole new social set. And here, Scott is going to begin to write in earnest. Leaving Zelda alone for a lot of the time of the day. But that's okay, because she can go swimming and lay out and work on her tan. And she's reading books in French. And it's all very good. And then she runs into a handsome French aviator. (laughs) Bunch of aviators are hanging out with Zelda on the pier all day. I'm shocked. Working on her tan. Uh Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And this particular, one particular French aviator, Josanne, he will buzz the house 
with his airplane like her previous beau did in Montgomery. And Scott, who has perhaps not been at all faithful in their marriage up to this point, Zelda's going to step out here. The entire social set they're hanging with knows something's going on, except for Scott. He's clueless because he's so obsessively working on The Great Gatsby. So over this summer, because Zelda, tired of being your princess in the tower, three years was enough for me, let's go ahead and divorce. You won't let me work, earn my own money. I would like to be more than a princess in your weird mental tower. So, Scott, I would like a divorce. And Scott hits the roof, gets so angry, and so you're never going to have this Zelda that he locks Zelda in a room for a month. Okay, that's shocking. And just locks her away. Nobody sees Zelda Fitch. Nobody sees her for an entire month wow. on the French Riviera. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I guess you couldn't divorce without consent back then. So, great. She's literally trapped. <laughs> literally trapped. She will overdose on pills a few weeks later. She is resentful. She's uncertain. She is emotionally abused. She is physically abused as well. I think that Zelda realizes at this point, this is her fate. Yeah. She's blown off her family. All she does is write notes apologizing for Scott's behavior. What what is she going to do? Here, Zelda makes a switch and says, you know what? I'm going to change this game. I'm going to change this game. Once I'm out of here, I'm going to change this game and I'm not going to let you do this to me anymore. So those first four years work a little different than the next three years, but it's all terribly, terribly bad for our girl Zelda. Scott is so broken by Zelda's stepping out that Scott from this point, 1924 on mistreats, Zelda for the rest of his time on Earth. Rest of his time. Fantastic. That's what you want. A life of vengeance. After this crap summer, October 24, the Great Gatsby is sent back across the pond and they're trying to patch up this book because Scott, right? But in the Great Gatsby, Scott's stealing directly from his life. Ginevra's in there. Because rich girls don't marry poor boys. There's Zelda too, all manifested, wrapped up in it. And The Great Gatsby, again, not well received. It's not a success. There are deaths and murder. Uh, The flapper mystique is over. They say the oracle of the jazz age is grown up. Scott's changed. His story's changed. But he's writing his life and her life, and their stories have changed. But the original audience that Scott had is gone. And The Great Gatsby doesn't sell well in his life. It now sells about Mm -hmm. 300,000 copies a year. Yeah. It's been made into five films. It's required high school reading. The Gatsby found its fame as the great American novel, just not in (laughs) Scott's lifetime. Good reviews, disappointing sales. So, spring of 1925. Great Gatsby, not a success. Zelda and Scott are in Paris. Oh, goodness. Now enter into the picture, Ernest Hemingway. Hmm. Ernest Hemingway and Scott become big drinking buddies. Hemingway is a much more successful writer commercially. 
Scott and Ernest drink a lot. The thing you want to know is that Ernest Hemingway hates Zelda Fitzgerald. Hmm. Zelda hates Ernest Hemingway. They have an intense rivalry over Scott, which is psychosomatic at its best. The Love Triangle episode of Scott and Zelda and Ernest is going to post on Patreon for Everybody Monday. It's an alternate story and entirely trashy. That's going to be our re-upped bonus of this week because it does attach in this story. Scott in Paris is sucking up to Ernest. He's sucking up to the Murphys. He's sucking up to everybody he can suck up to. And Zelda doesn't need to suck up to anybody. She's Alabama royalty. And Mm. no one had any money in Alabama anyway. Like money, like we were all broke. (laughs) In Paris, their social circle has expanded. Now they're chilling with Gertrude Stein, Matisse, Juan Gris, Miro, artists, writers, composers, ballet dancers, like everything amazing is happening in Paris in the 20s. Zelda begins to paint in 1925. Remember 1924? She's like, I'm not going to be that girl anymore. I'm getting myself out of my tower. Gerald Murphy begins to work with Zelda on color composition, color theory, beginning to paint. Zelda will paint every day of her life until the day of her death. After this, painting becomes a thing for her. Art is her solace. Another thing Zelda will begin to do is rediscover her love of writing. Her most productive periods of writing are from 1929 to 1934, mainly from institutions that Scott's going to put her in. Her next most productive time is 1940 to 1948 after the death of Scott. Here in Paris in the mid-1920s, Zelda also rediscovers her love for ballet. She begins training daily. She becomes so skilled that at 25, she's all like, you don't do this. She quit dancing as a teenager. Sure. She's coming back here at 25 after a child. She's offered a solo role hmm. in an Italian company. <laughs> And Scott's like, uh, no way are you ever going to do that. Wow. So Scott just a charmer. He's terrible. He's terrible. So Zelda, after this terrible summer of you've locked me in a room for a month, I'll never be that girl again, is doing art. She's writing. She's doing ballet and wanting to be something more. Hey, you told me, Scott, that flappers could be anything. Why are you... Why are you putting me in this old school box when I'm the role model for this brand new woman? What? Oh God, I, God, I can't stand that guy. No, it's the classic thing where a guy finds like a vibrant, amazing woman and then... How can I diminish her? Slowly sort of strangles the life out of the vibrancy and amazingness. That's exactly it. So we're going to take a quick break and come back with how it all shakes down. Hmm. See you on the flip. want to talk about a little bit of a quick interlude that happens. Scott and Zelda end up going back to the United States. And Scott is going to make his first attempt at a Hollywood writing career in 1927. He doesn't do great at that attempt at a Hollywood career, but what Scott will do is meet a 17-year-old actress at a lunch given for the Fitzgeralds at the home of Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford. Hmm. 
This actress, young, a young, young actress, her name is Lois Moran. And it's 1927, and Zelda's lost a little bit of her shine as a princess in the tower. And you know what? Scott's going to transfer his, oh, you're my new golden girl. Lois is an actress, and Scott just can't quit talking about Lois to Zelda. She's so brave and so courageous, and she's making a name for herself and making her independent money, too. Wow. All this stuff you could be doing if I didn't keep stopping you from doing That's exactly that. right. Okay. So Lois will visit Scott in the company of her mother. And Zelda, hearing all of this, is like, you have got to be kidding me. I bet. All you have done mm -hmm. is give me hell for years about your struggle to financially support me because I spend too much money. And this is who you go for? Yeah. I'm not allowed to make my own money. You just want to complain about the money we spend. You have a hell of a lot of nerve, yeah. F. Scott Fitzgerald. Mm -hmm. Zelda, one of my favorite stories about Zelda, at this point, she is going to throw all of her clothes in a bathtub and burn them. Hmm. She's mad. Yeah. She's real mad. On the way back on the train from Hollywood, she is going to toss a watch out of the window. Like she's she's furious. Scott is not successful in Hollywood. He gets in a fight with Constance Talmadge, the actress that he's supposed to be writing a script for. Okay, so just one of the biggest stars of the day. Correct. Yeah. That he was going to write a little movie for and then managed to piss her off. Oh, yeah. Great that work. went bad. Great so work. Scott is not working in Hollywood anymore. And Scott and Zelda go back to Delaware for a little while. And Scott will tell Zelda after they're back in Delaware, after the bathtub on fire, after the toss my crap out the train on the way back, Scott tells Zelda that he's invited Lois to come for a visit. Oh, my God. All right. They're eventually going to go back to Paris. She needs to get back to her aviator is what she needs to do. It's terrible. They are going to go back to Paris. And here Zelda will find a new set of friends. This is my favorite set of friends she's got. This is the lesbian avant-garde set that is roaming around Paris at the time. Romaine Brooks, mm -hmm. Natalie Barney, Juana Barnes, these progressive women who appreciate and support art. And ladies, they're a little softer. They're a little bit more accepting, and they don't like Scott Fitzgerald either. But they're making art. We've got the Temple Artemis and the Ladies' Almanac. It is this whole dynamic, thriving culture that even though Zelda's married, they're like, hey, Zelda, you're a great dancer. You're mm -hmm. a great artist. Come hang out with us in this feminist collective right. where your work can be recognized and supported Appreciated. and promoted. Yeah. Right. Scott doesn't like that. Really? I'm <laughs> surprised to learn this. Now, Scott and Ernest have been doing weird things in men's restrooms all about Paris for years, but... Give Zelda some girlfriends who appreciate what she does and no. Scott begins to talk a lot about Zelda's lesbian tendencies now. Which after you've been married to Scott Fitzgerald for I mean, a while. Take a walk on the wild side. But the other part of this is that Scott and Zelda are both 
intensely worried about Scott's own sexuality, right? Like, because <sighs> his hero worship of Ernest Hemingway is above and beyond what one might expect. Essentially. So Zelda growing more obsessive in her work, Scott growing more jealous. Zelda kind of like, Scott, if you want to be gay, that's fine. Go be gay. Leave me alone. But remember, Scott has to write the script. He has to control it. And whatever Scott is going to rail at anybody else for is exactly what Scott is doing primarily, which is going to lead to Zelda's first hospitalization. She is a Southern Belle on a passive-aggressive streak, which I guess you could see as irrational behavior. Scott does. She's dancing every day. She neglects, neglects. She just doesn't do as much housework. She's not around to draw his characters and pet his fragile ego. She's going and living her own life. And Scott's like, oh no, you're not going to do that. It's a sign of insanity. It is a sign of insanity. So... Scott is going to put Zelda in, I want to say, seven mental institutions throughout the next few years. And every one he puts her into, Scott goes into the doctors like, hello, I'm Dr. Fitzgerald, and I would like to run my wife's treatment. You don't know. I put her here because she clearly needs you, doctor. But doctor, I would like you to listen to me to let you know how to control my wife. All of these institutions are in Europe. So Switzerland, Austria, France. Zelda is at a complete disadvantage in another country. She's Southern. She has a distinctive style of speech. And I would get it. I would understand Zelda Fitzgerald. You talk like a duck on a June bug. Like There's colloquialisms. There's part of that Southern vernacular that when she goes to... European doctors in Zurich. Mm -hmm. They're not quite, yeah. And it confuses them. So Zelda and not being understood becomes aloof and distant, which is a distinct difference from anyone else from her hometown that knows her. Everybody's like, Zelda, she's warm. She's loyal. She's grace under pressure. She's kind. She's funny. She's witty. She's everything. Zelda will get a handful of better doctors through her terrible ones. This is when Scott will change where she is. When she gets a doctor who's like, yeah, your husband is an alcoholic. And we see that it could improve your marriage and your communication skills if he quit drinking. And so maybe these kind doctors would go and do some family therapy with Mm -hmm. Scott. Like, hey, Scott. Have you ever thought about how your behavior contributes in this? And as soon as that happens, Scott yanks her out of that place and puts her in a new place. He doesn't want to have to deal with Zelda. Right. That's going to cramp his style. Right. He wants to outsource the fixing of his wife in a way that requires nothing from him. Well, it does require something from him. Think about what it requires. All the problems Zelda's causing with money. And how hard I have to work to keep her supported in these fancy institutions that I've actually put her in. I am having to work so hard. Listen to me complain about my lot in life because Mm -hmm. of my crazy wife. I'm mad about it. All he does is complain about I have to keep you supported. 
And now we've moved from keeping her supported in the ordinary functioning world to keeping her supported in some of the best mental institutions. And Zelda's like, Scott, I'm a painter. I'm a dancer. I'm a writer. I can make money too, you arrogant ass. Get me out of this fancy summer camp where I can help contribute to our marriage. But Scott doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to quit drinking. He doesn't want to give up that control. Yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah, he won't have to change his behavior nope. whatsoever. No. Nope. So then, this is even worse. There are transcripts of the two of them talking to doctors. And it is like, ladies home journal, can this marriage be saved? And no, 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 it <laughs> cannot. Uh, they're harrowing. And Scott's blaming everything on her. And Zelda, for being the crazy one, supposedly, is really reasonable. Like, just tell me what to do. I'll go. I'll stay. Like, what? what is it you want, Scott? You got to figure this out because I'm not the problem here. Ah, <sighs> Zelda. <sighs> Isn't going to get out. But Zelda, again, passive-aggressive, Southern fell on a mission. She's like, hey, doctor, could I go ahead and get like a notepad, something to write on and maybe a pen? That'd be fun. They'll acquiesce to this, which is great. And in 1932... Zelda Fitzgerald, in four weeks, cranks out her first novel called Save Me the Waltz. This novel, Zelda thinks, should use all of her life material, and does. <laughs> all of her childhood in Montgomery, all of her time in Paris, marriage, motherhood, her hospitalizations. Zelda is going to write a novel in four weeks. Scott, not too happy about it. Scott has been uh, working for nine years on Tender is the Night. He has been keeping all of her doctor records and her patient records and all of those transcripts because he doesn't have any original material. He's making her the original material. Nine years. But right. Zelda is like, mm, four weeks. So in a way, she's scooping him? On her own life, yes. Yeah. <laughs> She'll send it over to his editors. He's furious. I mean, capital F furious. He uh, edits all of it because his editors are like, Zelda sent us this really cool thing. What's up? And he's like, what are you talking about? <sighs> Scott Will, in 1934, after editing Zelda's novel, release his own Tender is the Night, but... Nine years later, it's outdated. It's in the Depression era. This novel fails and Scott's devastated and he begins drinking more than ever. Court of gin at breakfast. Mm. 30 beers a day. Oh my God. With the court of gin at breakfast. Wow. Uh-huh. This is when Scott will write a piece called The Crack Up. He's emotionally bankrupt. It's put out in three different parts in Esquire. And this will hurt his reputation. Scott will say, life ended for me when Zelda and I crashed. Well, who was driving the plane, Scott? Ah, I'm so mad about it. I haven't talked a whole lot about their kid, because they have a kid in all this. Mm -hmm. Scotty has nannies and boarding schools, and she's going to stay and grow up for a time with Scott's business manager and his wife. They become her substitute parents in a lot of ways. Well, Yeah. Scott writes his daughter harsh letters of admonishment and shame, just like he wrote to his sister. 
Scott is looking at his daughter Scotty like a mini Zelda. Let's go ahead and just get to the end of Scott. I don't know. September 1936, the New York Evening Post has an article calling him a failed writer. Mm. It calls him a sodden and despairing alcoholic. Wow. The famous drunk, washed up and out of fashion. Wow. Don't hold back. Scott's going to return to Hollywood anyway Mm. after this. I mean, I'd get out of New York. (laughs) For his third attempt to make it in the movies. And here in Los Angeles, he's sober-ish. Like, it probably is not going to go that great. Like, he's declared washed up. Scott's staying in the Garden of Allah. He's working hard. He's pushing himself to stay sober. He's trying to write himself a new character. He's assigned Zelda a new role of mental patient, so maybe he writes himself a new role, too. Scott's new role, he wants to be a Hollywood screenwriter. And let's cue up the sexy music and meet one Sheila Graham. Sheila Graham is an English rose of a gal fresh off a divorce. She's part of a syndicated trio of gossip columnists working out of Hollywood. The other part of that trio, in addition to Sheila Graham, Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper. Okay. She's a young Hollywood gossip columnist and... Believe it or not, you'd be surprised to know that Sheila Graham looks a whole lot like Zelda Fitzgerald before Scott broke Zelda Fitzgerald. And within a few weeks after meeting, Scott and Sheila are a thing. Like so much a thing that she's having dinner with Scott's daughter, Mm. telling her to eat her peas. Wow. Uh Uh-huh. It's weird. He's married, but that's fine. And I guess there's nothing good about bringing his daughter into the active affair Scott is having. Scott has no intention of divorcing Zelda. And Sheila even breaks off an engagement to date Scott. She was engaged to the Marquis of Donegal Hmm. when they met. But Sheila will love him for better or worse until Scott dies. She protests the term mistress. She thinks that their love is much more noble than that. But later she will admit that Scott is a total phony. The noble love of the guy busily drinking himself to death? Well, he's sober at this time. Okay. He's he's trying to stay sober and he's working in Hollywood. At this time, Scott is going to work on the films A Yank in Oxford. He doesn't get any credit for that. He does work on Three Comrades, which is a minor hit. It's his first and only screen credit. MGM is going to give him a raise. Scott will write Infidelity for Joan Crawford, but that one is never made because of censorship. (laughs) (laughs) Scott's going to get a house on the beach with a little bit cheaper rent. And because he's failing, so he thinks in Hollywood, he's disappointed and Scott falls off the wagon. Yeah. So we go back to a court of gin at breakfast. Scott is then loaned to David Selznick, For his 1939 film, Gone with the Wind. But Scott is told only to use dialogue from the novel. Mm. You can't make anything up. Scott's replaced on that after two weeks. Yikes. He goes back to drinking gin all day. Sheila Graham is not mistress because that's a profane term. But whatever you are, girlfriend, Sheila doesn't drink. Does she have a little I can fix him thing going on? I think so. Yeah, Yeah. she, well, 
she thinks he's fixing her. She will write a book about him called Beloved Infidel about her education and life and love that happens from Scott Fitzgerald when she was young in Hollywood. One day I will follow up on Sheila Graham and F. Scott Fitzgerald over on Patreon. I do finally got my hands on Beloved Infidel. But Scott, not successful, right? He's released from contract at the end of the year. It's not renewed. Scott and Sheila are having terrible fights. They're wrestling over loaded guns and stuff. Like, it's yeah. it's all terrible. In April of 1939, Scott's final binge begins. And he begins writing what will be his last novel, The Last Tycoon, thinly disguised about Irving Thalberg, the wonderkin director married to Norma Shearer. Irving Thalberg was the Midas Touch producer who passed away in 1936. And here, Scott loves what he's writing. He feels alive again. He ends up with about 7,000 pages, but not long enough to do anything with. But again, he's really sliding downhill. December 1st, 1939. Scott will assault the private care nurse that has been hired to help him watch his drinking. He pulls a gun on Sheila. Yikes. She calls the police and walks out. Like, I just, you know what? Yeah. You want to die? I'm out of here. I'm, I'm not going to be around anymore. Mm-hmm. Do your thing. And Scott begs her to come back in the way that serial abusers do. And Scott and Sheila reunite. She's going to be with him. They go visit Mexico. He stays sober, continues to write, but will suffer a mild heart attack in November of 1940. At this point, moving into Sheila Graham's. While recuperating at Sheila's, Scott suffers a massive heart attack on December 21st, 1940, at the age of 44. Wow. What happens to Zelda after the passing of Scott, who had no intention of divorcing her? Zelda will spend the next eight years in and out of hospitals. And compared to the previous years, Zelda really does flourish. She is in and out, and certainly she's damaged. But I don't know if she came in with that damage or if that damage had been steadily done to her by all of her stays, electric shock therapy, drugs, psychosis. Mm -hmm. There was a lot that happened. Right. Zelda still paints daily. Her daughter, Scotty, gets married. Zelda has a granddaughter. Zelda does four art exhibitions in Montgomery. Her paintings here develop a little bit more religious bend. She's thinking a lot about religion, writing about religion towards the later years of her life. Zelda Sayre will perish in 1948 along with eight other women in a midnight fire. Zelda suffers a terrible end at the age of 48, being ultimately identified by her dental records and a half-burnt slipper. Super tragic. Zelda is buried beside Scott in Rockville, Maryland. I mean, there are tens of thousands of stories, I guess, like Scott and Zelda. Like, it's just a bad relationship, but don't stay in the bad relationship. Go, go, go. I just think it's a little hilarious that he was such a difficult person in life 
that when it came time to bury him, the church was like, nope, nope, not going to do it. I mean, it took a little bit. Sure. Uh-huh. Sure. No, they got him in the ground. Eventually. All right, Alicia, I know this is a complicated question, but let's talk trash cans. Thank you, Stacy. Before I assign trash cans for this one, I would like to take a moment just to sum up this story from Zelda's point of view. I am certain that at the tender age of 18, for Zelda, F. Scott Fitzgerald looked like a great idea. She was going to get out of her tiny town, especially as he was proving himself with the novel. But, ah, Zelda, so many, many red flags. Long before this, you made it to the big city, but at what cost? Can you imagine Zelda, who has fought for this marriage, as it was happening, with all of her family and all of her friends saying, no, 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 no. Yep. She's going to do it anyway. And from day one, Scott is writing her a new script. But Zelda, she's an actress. She's living the high life. I really think she believes in Scott until she doesn't believe in Scott. She's got a lot of faith in his future. She knows his talent. And she can help him with his talent. She wants to help him along the way of that thing he's doing. But hey, maybe Zelda thinks, can I get some recognition here too, buddy? Yep. I am half of your legend, my dude. I'm the queen of the flappers. You've made me this role model for independent women in this decade. And Scott should be doing something completely different to promote the talent and the genius that is his wife. Scott married Zelda because of her light and her shine, and now all he wants to do is quelch it under a bucket. So much quelch. Zelda was always going to outshine you, buddy. And Scott just behaves miserably, more miserably, through time. F. Scott Fitzgerald, you are a gaslighter and a narcissist. It would have been kinder to divorce her. Just let her go, man. My wish for this couple is we could move them a hundred years up into the future, and they could be living in 2023 in the land of no-fault divorce, where Zelda Fitzgerald could manifest whatever dream for her life that she pleases. Scott, release the princess in the tower already. Can you imagine what the Bama Rush TikTok would be like if Zelda Sayre was there? All the Birmingham girls would just go on home. <laughs> All the trash cans in this story. Thank you, Stacy. I'm going to get back to you answering your sure. question now. All belong to Scott. All those trash cans are filled with stolen pages of his wife's work and empty bottles, too, mm. from 30 bottles of beer at breakfast and gin, oh. too, on just an ordinary day. Yeah. Holy cats, this story. Team Zelda, forever and always. Hey, Patreon friends, this week, Two bonuses are coming for you that do attach to this story. First up, sending to all Patreon levels an episode I did back not long ago in November about the Taylor Swift song Happiness and how it is the theme song for Scott and Zelda. There's a second holiday goodie. All levels will get the trashy love triangle of Zelda, Scott, and Ernest Hemingway too. Oh God, that's so trashy. All the trashy holiday goodies coming for you. Patreon.com slash Trashy Divorces is the place to go to get in on those episodes, along with early and ad-free episodes, bonus episodes, dumpster dives, 
and monthly Zoom meetups with you and I too, Stacy. Yep. If you are looking for a bit more trashy in your podcast listening, every Monday, Alicia drops done and done. Holy cats, this week we are dipping further into the legendary Hollywood producer Robert Evans. And this week, all the done and done spiderwebs get Robert Evans right too. Ernest Hemingway, Norma Shearer, Lana Turner, and Ava Gardner too. And every Thursday, we drop Trashy Royals. We are right now in the middle of our Eleanor of Aquitaine arc. And wow, Queen of France, Queen of England, two different husbands, an annulment. Oh, there's so much. What an audacious 12th century woman with some real agency, it turns out. Really is an incredible story over there. And on Trashy Royals, almost 40 episodes Hmm. now for your listening pleasure over the holidays. If you're looking for something else to add into your trashy wheelhouse. We appreciate you spending your time with us and your support in all of the ways, telling your friends about us, all of your kind emails, ratings and reviews, and all of your interactions on social media and your support on Patreon as well. Y'all are simply the best. Thank you again for spending your time with us today. Until we meet again this Wednesday, we want you to keep your hands clean. Keep your hearts trashy, friends. Stay away from Scott Fitzgerald at all costs, darlings. When you see his bouquet of red flags coming to you, just Just run. Just run. Run the other way. Just dance on out of there. Happy celebration of the end of relationships from us here at Trashy Divorces to y'all. Can't wait to see you next time. Big love, everybody. Bye. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there. And thanks again, everybody, for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all.